So today we're beginning our Storm of Life series. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that's going to be the central ver verse that we, or verses that we go through today. And today we're going to be talking about the purpose of storms. And storms in this case isn't talking about thunderstorms, it's not talking about tornadoes, not talking about even those horrible snowstorms that we had in February of this year. When I speak about storms, I'm talking about the situations in life that really challenge us in our faith in God. In 2002, my family and I traveled to Walla Walla, Washington to see my sister graduate from high school. And we took three, I took three weeks off of work and visited the entire western United States, or northwestern. And one of the places that we had marked to visit was Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. If you've never been there, you need to add it to your bucket list. Yellowstone National Park is, is one of the most beautiful areas in the United States. And it's huge. If you're going to visit there, don't plan a one-day trip to visit. Yellowstone National Park is pretty much, if you were to take Madison, the lake, and the Illinois border, it's bigger than that. So this is, this is actually, it's a huge park. You could probably spend three weeks there at least and not see the whole thing. And even though I wanted to see my sister, and you know, I wanted to see her graduate, wanted to see my former stepmother, I... Really, I really wanted to see Yellowstone. It was the highlight of my trip. It was a thing that we were talking in a few minutes about how beautiful God was and how we stare at those things that are beautiful. Well, even back then, during the very slow internet of 2002, we were looking at pictures of Yellowstone. We were looking at the Grand Prismatic Springs. We were looking at Old Faithful. We were looking at all the different things that we could see in Yellowstone. And I was so amped about just going out there and seeing the incredible beauty that, that this national park had to offer. So we made our trip from, Wyoming, from uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, South Dakota, excuse me, and went through Wyoming. We stopped off in Cody for the night, which is right on the outside of, of the park, and then drove through the eastern border of the park. As we traveled through Yellowstone on US Highway 14, we came to an area that was actually kind of sad. They had had a huge fire there. Um, I think it was the year before, about 18 months before, they had this huge wildfire go through. And acres and miles and miles of driving, actually, were just completely burned out. There was nothing but ash on the ground, some tree stumps, all this kind of stuff. There was no, you didn't see any wildlife, really. And I was just kind of depressed that it's like, man, I wanted to see Yellowstone and all of its natural beauty. And it wasn't that long. It was probably only maybe about 10 minutes of the drive and before you were back into you know, the, the lush forests and everything. But I was just, just kind of disappointed because I was just thinking, I was like, man, this place, because of the hills and the mountains, just had to be beautiful when all those trees were there. Well, the third day we were there, we decided to visit Old Faithful Geyser. It's one of those necessary things you need to see in Yellowstone. If you don't know what Old Faithful is, Yellowstone is essentially sitting on top of a volcano. It's a huge um, puddle of, well, puddle, lake, I guess, ocean of magma, molten lava, sitting underneath the, the, the soil at Yellowstone. And that, so, that magma heats water that occasionally flies up out of the ground, and it's called a geyser. Old Faithful is called Old Faithful because 
reliably every 90 minutes, give or take about five minutes, it shoots up a couple hundred feet in the air with a whole bunch of sulfur smelling water. And it's pretty neat to watch because you, you hear it building and you hear steam and kind of a high whistle and then all of a sudden water shoots up. Well, we got there right after it had shot up. So we had about an hour and a half wait. So as we sat there, you're kind of in this big circle and you're watching the guys you're not allowed to walk anywhere near it, of course, because you don't want to fall in it. That would be bad. So we're sitting there watching and I, I got up and I went to the bathroom and as I came back from the bathroom, there was one of the rangers there at Yellowstone and they were talking, um, he was talking about Old Faithful and he was telling us all this information that I just gave you about Yellowstone being one of the biggest volcanoes on earth. And at the end of it, he uh, asked if anybody had any questions. And I waited till the end with everybody else. And, and then I, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, what about that area way over there? Right as you came in, it was just so scorched. I said, that's just too bad. I'm like, that's just kind of depressing, you know, kind of driving through that and just all that beautiful forest that had burned down and probably how many animals went with it and all that. And he said, no. He goes, I know that right now it looks bad, but he said, we we're actually very, very excited about all of that burning down. And I looked at him like he was crazy. I'm thinking that had to like threaten houses, that had to threaten humans. He goes, he goes I, I know you're thinking fire, it's very bad. But the fact is, we considered that area of the forest to be in major decline at that time. He said the undergrowth under there was choking out the life. The, the trees were getting full of disease. There was just, it was just a tinderbox waiting to happen. And what finally happened, happened. He said, ecologically speaking, scientifically speaking, fire is part of nature's reset button. And this fire went in and it burned out all the disease. It burned out all the animals that were in there that weren't supposed to be. It burned it down. And right now, he said, come back in 10 years that's going to be even more beautiful than it was before. And his, actually, actually, his answer just really surprised me and how excited he was about this. And as I was preparing the message this morning, I thought back to his words. And I thought, that's an awesome illustration of what God wants us to learn in his word about why we have the storms in our life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Pastor Paul, also the Apostle Paul, is giving some instructions to the church that is very instructive to us this morning about these storms of life. And I'm going to read what Paul wrote and then go through it to see how and why God allows these storms to impact us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. And it's on the back of your bulletin if you want to flip it over and read it there. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, 
but yet will be saved, even as though only as one escaping through the flames. Let's pray. Father God, we ask, Lord, that you just make this scripture and this idea about the purpose of hard times in our life, that you'd reveal the truth behind it, that you would use it to build our faith, and that you would use it to put a foundation down that will withstand any storm that life will throw through it or flow in it, and that you would help us to even have a joyful spirit during these times because we trust that you are working out our salvation and making us in to a prize and a trophy of grace to show the entire universe. Lord God, I ask, Father, for your blessing during this time. In your name, amen. Now, there's three basic truths I want to look at this morning regarding the purposes of storms in our life. And these storms come through the trials and hardships that occur, and they have a purpose. And the first purpose is to test our foundation. To test our foundation. Paul had a, was talking a lot about foundation in this passage. And the storms of life, when they happen to us, they're really meaning to for God to be posing a question to us. And that is, is your foundation built on Christ? Or have you built your foundation on your own wisdom, your own thoughts, or your own ideas about the way things should be? And the way our foundation is tested is that it identifies a problem in the church called backsliding. Now, all of you who have known me for a while, you know my natural personality is that of an introvert. Introverts like me, we're not really social people. We like to, we live in our own heads. We're not, generally not people who are going to be throwing parties or wanting to go places of big crowds or, and be part of huge social events. However, it doesn't mean that we don't care. We care very deeply. I consider myself a, a keen observer of other people, and particularly people I care about. And over the years, I've watched people walk with Christ and seeing their ups and their downs and their kind of walk with God, that all of our walks with God kind of go like this. And hopefully they're always going in a generally upward uh, progression, but they kind of dip and curve a little bit when it comes to our, our passion and our zeal for Jesus. Pretty much everybody who has ever lived will go through a period of backsliding. And this backsliding word is just a church word. That means that your relationship with Christ has cooled off at some point. And your focus has switched from living for him exclusively to living for something in this world. In Wisconsin, we see it every November. Churches empty out about the third week of the year because everybody runs out and goes deer hunting. If I wasn't a pastor, I might be there. <laughs> I love, I love to hunt deer. I, I love that time of the year of going deer hunting. And the problem for us Christians is that when we decide, either through a conscious decision or by simple neglect, to start to move our lives away from Christ and his church and go toward the world and its temptations, is that we start building on a foundation that can't support that lifestyle. For example... If I got permission from the board to, build, to extend the patio at the parsonage, 
I need to dig out an area about three to four inches deep. I need to pour some gravel in there, and then I can pour cement and concrete into there, and it will form a new patio. And it would serve me well in that purpose. However, if I extended the patio out, I know most of you probably haven't been to the par parsonage, but patio is between the garage and the house. If I extended the patio out further using patio specifications and then decided to expand the garage out, that isn't made to support vehicles. You need about eight inches dug out and graveled and concrete to be able to support a vehicle. And if I decided to build a structure on top of that, that insufficient foundation, it's gonna cause the whole garage to become unstable. The same thing happens in our life when we accept Christ. We die to our old way of thinking and the Holy Spirit comes in and begins something called the process of sanctification. Sanctification is another big church word that means to take something which is common and make it holy. If I go outside and I pick up some, some mud out of the ground, you know, and I bring it and I plop it on your table, you're going to think I'm a little nuts, right? You're like, what are you doing plopping a bunch of mud onto my kitchen table? However, if I take that same mud and I take it home and I mix it with the right ingredients and then I put it on a wheel and I make a beautiful bowl out of it and I put it in and I varnish it and everything else and put it in a kiln and then bring it to you and put it on your table, you would think that's an incredible gift. Sanctification is kind of the same thing in that we are taking something that is normally just kind of worthless, which is us before Christ, if you want to really be honest, and making it into something that is very valuable. In other words, sanctification takes something that is sinful and living for itself and taking it into and making it holy and somebody that's living for Christ. And I've seen over and over again that people who have been sanctified, when they backslide away from Jesus and their passions begin to, to move away from him, that their lives explode into chaos. I've seen it time and time and time again. I watched an elder in our first church. He had been saved 35 years. And he was, he was ordained in the ministry through that church. He had lived for Jesus, won hundreds of people to the Lord, suddenly got caught up with another woman, left his wife, lost his business, not even through the divorce, just totally his life completely fell apart because he had that thick foundation and then tried to build worldly things on it, and his whole life fell apart. It was a tragic, one of the, it was right when I got saved, it was just one of the most tragic situations I had ever seen. Why does people fall apart like that? Because the foundation that Jesus built can't stand up to willful rebellion against him. You can't have mix that with that and expect it to, to stand in the midst of a storm. Now Jesus, I think we would all agree, is probably the world's greatest subject matter of spiritual issues. And, it's, and the greatest expert on exactly what is happening in the spirit realm when people backslide and willfully walk away from Jesus. He put it like this in Matthew 20, or 12, 43. 
Jesus said when an impure spirit comes out of a person, that's a person that's, that's, that's getting saved, that's turning away from their sinful lifestyle and following Jesus. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. This is a person that has received Christ. This is a person who has been cleaned up by the Holy Spirit, but through willful rebellion and, or, or, just, or neglect has, has walked away from Jesus and the Holy Spirit is no longer living there. Verse 45, it says, Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. So we see those several steps. That unclean spirit comes out. Speaking to the person who gets saved. Second, the person backslides. They turn away from Jesus. That home is swept clean, but there's no one living there. Giving demons the right to go and squat. And then that dark spiritual influence of this fallen world comes back in. And it was even stronger than it was at first. And that foundation of Jesus is not, is not designed to deal with that situation. And so that person crumbles, and it brings them down. So this is what happens when people backslide all the way out of their salvation. I just want to make that clear. This is a person who, who was following Jesus and then decides, again, through purposefully or neglect, to walk away from Jesus. This is what the spiritual picture of what happens. And this is the primary function of the church, is to hold each other accountable. To hold each other accountable. Now, when we talk about accountability, it doesn't mean that we're peeking in each other's windows at night. It doesn't mean that we're looking in, looking in your car to see what you're listening to. It isn't that. Accountability is out of love. It's protective to make sure that we cross the finish line in a condition ready to meet our King. It's love. It's not just being intrusive or being a nosy Nelly. It means I love you and I want to see you cross that finish line. It's also why God allows the storms in your life. It's not because He's angry with you. It's not because He's some malevolent God up there polishing a thunderbolt with your name on it. It's because He loves you and He has mercy on you and He wants to expose those things in your life that will lead you away from Him. And that leads us to the next point of why God allows storms. And that's to get rid of those things that do not help us in our walk with Him. And the Bible calls these things wood, hay, and straw. Or in some um, of your Bibles it might be wood, hay, or stubble. One of my favorite worship songs of all time is one by the founder of the Salvation Army, General William Booth. It's called Send the Fire. It, go, it starts out saying, O God of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire. Your blood-bought gift today we claim. Send the fire today. We see fire throughout the Bible, don't we? How does God appear to Moses? He appears in a fire in a bush that does not consume the bush. How did he appear to the Israelites when they were led out of Egypt? He appeared to them as a pillar of fire 
by night? How did the Holy Spirit appear on the day of Pentecost as flaming tongues of fire resting upon the heads of every person in that upper room? Have you ever asked the question of God, what is it with this fire? Fire is something that that humans usually fear. Why are you using fire as something representative of us wanting in our life, of something that we, we beg for you to send? Because fire destroys wood, hay, and stubble. If you, were to take, if you were to have a pile of hay sitting here and you walk up to it with a flamethrower and hit it with a, you don't even need a flamethrower, just a match for some dry hay and throw it in there, woof, that stuff's going to go up like crazy. And if you want to be free of your struggles, free of addictions, free of your sin, spend time at the altar seeking Jesus. Spend time in prayer going after him. That's what these storms of life are meant to refocus us on. The things that matter. And Jesus is what should matter in our life. Plead for Jesus to send the fire of his presence into your spirit today. There's a worship song that we sing here that says it well. That says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, if you are a Christian here this morning, you're a child of the King of Kings. And God is a good father. God is a father that does not want his children to live beneath the thing he has called them to. Too many Christians are happy to be living in the gutter when God wants you to be living in a palace. But that's what sin is, is something, it's a weight that drags us down. And he wants us to live in the fullness of his favor because he's a good father. And a good father will do whatever it takes to get his children to come back to him. And if our king, if our father sees us building upon something outside of the foundation he provided, then it's his love and mercy that sends that storm to quickly come into your life to test that thing that you are building and to show you that what you're building on is not something is going to bring glory to him. That's why all of us, it's one of my main prayers to God, is that he keeps me on a short leash. Let me explain. Many of you have met my dog, Candy, if you've been over to my house. Candy is a 105-pound yellow Labrador retriever. We got her when she was six months old. One of the first things you learn when you, are, you have to do with a larger dog, and the most challenging thing that you have to do with a puppy that's already 100 pounds, is to teach it how to heal when you have it on a leash. And you start out with, with a very short leash with them, especially if you live in a city. I mean, around here, they can get away with running around a little bit. It's not as of, of a big of a deal. I mean, we have the highways here, but there's, they're not as, as fast as, as some of them in Kenosha or busy as some of them in Kenosha were. So you have to keep a dog on a very short leash because especially when they're young and before they're trained, you know, it's like, Attention deficit squirrel, and they have to go running after that squirrel. And they don't care about the semi that's coming and bearing down on them. So as you 
teach this dog to heal, and it took a long time for me to teach Candy how to heal, you want them to walk beside you, usually on the left is what the dog trainers say, and slightly behind you so they can watch which way you're going. Now when I walk Candy, now when Kevin walks Candy, she runs over to place, she has no respect for him, but when I walk Candy, I can just snap my finger and say heal, and she doesn't even need to be on a leash now. That's the kind of way that you and I should be with God. And if, if we still need that leash, if we're not well enough trained yet, at least make it a short leash, God, because I don't want to wander far from your bleeding. I don't want to wander far from your presence. I don't want to wander and let my eyes get caught on something I might want over here and walk away from the path that goes this way that you have for me. It never turns out well. And that's what I mean by my prayer is that God keeps me on that short leash. Because I admit, I can be kind of stubborn sometimes. I'm a German Norwegian like many of you. We're, we're, we're a little hard-headed at times. Sometimes we're not very trainable. And because of that, I need that short leash. And I pray for that short leash. And I can tell you that when you start wandering away from him, disaster comes. And that's something of what the storms of life are meant to show us. That when we're heading in a direction that isn't the one that God has prepared for us, that forms wood, hay, and stubble in our lives, and our spirits. And that's not going to survive his fire when we stand before him someday. And that's the last thing I want to focus on concerning the purpose of storms in our lives. And that's the necessity of it forming gold, silver, or precious stones. Gold, silver, or precious stones have something in common other than they're valuable. They need special condition to be truly useful. For gold and silver, you have to provide some significant heat to melt them, to draw out the dross, which are impurities within that melted metal, so that the finished product can shine that much more brighter. When I was working my way through paramedic school, I worked in an electronics factory. Part of the electronics factory um, was called the PC area, where you had to put the components very quickly into each one of the boards, the ones that couldn't be put in there by robots. People had to hand put those in. Those would go on an assembly line and be put into something called a wave solder machine. Wave solder machine was just melted lead solder, and the um, boards would pass over the top of them like that and it would solder all those pieces in automatically. Well, if you were a wave solder operator, you had to constantly go in to that solder and, with a, a scraper and scrape off a bunch of stuff that developed on the top. It was called the dross. And so at the end of the day, you'd have like a 10-pound bucket just filled with um, dross that you had to then go and, and bring back and all that. And I just remember just having to constantly scrape that thing and constantly get all that dross off. Well, that's some of what the storms of life do for us. They bring all that dross up to the surface so we can say, God, I know this is a part of me that's very ugly. I know this is a part of me that doesn't bring glory to you. And I know just from a selfish perspective that this is something that is holding me back in life is can you just reach down, take that scraper, and get it out of there? 
I'm willing to go through this hard time if it means that I shine brighter in life for you. However, some things aren't drawn off by just heat. So you need heat and pressure. And that's where diamonds come in, or precious stones. Diamonds are a very precious stone, but they have a very humble beginning. How many people here have a charcoal grill? You know that piece of charcoal that you have right there is a diamond? You put it under enough heat, enough pressure, you come out with a diamond someday. That's a, that's, that piece of charcoal that you think is just worthless falls out of your, your grill and you just kind of toss it in your, your ash heap, you're throwing away a diamond. Chemically speaking, charcoal is just a huge chunk of carbon. And diamonds are just um, pieces of carbon that have never been put under pressure. But if you put that carbon under tremendous heat and tremendous pressure, over time it compresses and it becomes that beautiful diamond. Scientists are doing this in labs right now to create industrial diamonds for lasers and other modern applications. So heat plus pressure plus time takes that piece of common charcoal that nobody really wants around their house and keep it out in the garage in a special area. But if, it's, if you allow it to have that heat and that pressure and time, it turns into one of the most sought after stones in all of creation. And the key here is time. This diamond and these precious stones in Scripture represent to us those storms that seem never-ending. Maybe it's a personality clerk, maybe or quirk, maybe it's a, a seemingly a lifelong temptation that you never seem to get over. For many men, if we're just going to be honest with each other, it's where our eyes wander when a pretty woman walks by. It may be a struggle with pornography. It may be something along those lines. That's why you sometimes need that constant storm in your life to provide that heat and that pressure over time to allow that ugly peace within you that you hate to allow God to transform it into a beautiful diamond someday. And you know what a diamond represents to God? Faith. Faith is the currency of heaven. If you think about it, that piece of charcoal that starts out so ugly, that maybe it's that besetting sin that exists within each one of us. But because we trusted God, because we kept putting our, our shoulder to that spiritual grindstone and kept trusting Him to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because we kept going on the path that He wanted us to go on, that charcoal was compressed, that heat and the fire that of God gets applied to it. And over time, it becomes that beautiful diamond. It's not that God wants you to be in sin, but He will use it to form His character in you, to break you down and to humble you so that you continue to walk after Him. And someday when you stand before Him, if you have diamonds in your spirit, they're proof that you've trusted God through all of that. They're proof to all of the universe of the incredible salvation that's available to each one of us. And it's my belief that those diamonds will form the crown that we'll wear throughout eternity. 
And that is why we take that crown and we throw it at the feet of Jesus. Because it wasn't us that made it. It was our trust in Him that did it. And Him living within us that did it. I'll end with this today. God's mercy in the storms of life. It's destroying that, that which isn't of Him because heaven is all about God. We sometimes think heaven is, is all about us and us being happy. No. That's why non-Christians can't go because they'll be miserable in heaven. It's, it's made for, for God. And that's one of the glories that we'll have is we get to see God in every facet of Him throughout all of eternity. Paul put it this way. He said, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Paul makes it a point that those who build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ in their whole life, but then later try to add things of this world to that foundation, will suffer loss when Jesus evaluates us. That's something called the Bema judgment. It's also called the judgment seat of Christ. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5.12. He said, we all, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so each one of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. My friends, someday we'll have to give an account. Every single one of us. And although our sins are covered by the blood of Christ, and thank God for that, amen, our willingness to be used of Jesus and our faithfulness to Him and His mission on earth will be evaluated and will be the basis of the reward given to us. So I ask you, if that was today, will what you have earned up until now survive the heat of Christ's presence? Or will your life's work burst into flames as you have nothing to show for the awesome grace and mercy that God has given to you? Let's all stand. Early in my Christian walk, I was introduced to the writings of a man named Leonard Ravenhill. And he was one of the great revivalists of the 20th century and a, a man of great prayer and prophecy and wisdom. And he penned these words about the judgment seat of Christ. He said, When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been had he had his way. And I see how I blocked him here and checked him there, and would not yield my will. Or there be grief in my Savior's eyes, grief though he loves me still. Would he have me rich and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace? Well, my memory runs like a hunted thing down the paths I cannot retrace. See, the purpose of these storms is simply to make us into God's diamonds, precious in his sight. These diamonds will be a result of the perseverance no matter what hits us in life. They're going to be the natural outworkings of faith in our lives. It will be the only thing from this life that follows us into eternity.
Leonard Ravenhill ends this poem that he wrote with this prayer. He said, Lord, of the years that are left of me, I give them to my hand. Take me and break me and mold me into the pattern that thou hast planned. Let that be our prayer today. Lord Jesus, we know that there are areas in our lives that we try to separate out, that we try to stick into a closet somewhere thinking that you can't see them. But you do see them. And I ask, Lord, for an open door policy in our spirit that every single door is freely open to you, that we allow the fire of your presence to burn away that wood, hay, and stubble in our life, that you would give us faith and perseverance to trust you when you say no, to trust you when you say, not that way, my son or my daughter, that you would enable us to put our complete faith in you for everything that is within our lives, whether it seems good or bad at this time. And that your fire would show through and burn through us until we become the diamonds of your kingdom. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I bless your people now. I ask, Father, for your fire to be in every single one of their lives so that they can show this community the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.